The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Today we're going to be doing a survey of one of the books of the Bible. Last time Jose did um, Leviticus, and today we're doing Numbers. And Numbers has 36 chapters, and it, it covers quite a lot of different topics and events. It's historical narrative, mostly. And it really would be impossible to do justice to, thank you, to do justice to the book in 45 minutes. So one of the things when you're surveying a book of the Bible, you have to know how to discriminate and know what to bring, you know, bring and what to leave out. And hopefully I've done a good job at that. I listened to Jose's uh, class on Leviticus and I thought he did a really good job at, at regulating that, that, dis, that discrepancy that you need when doing one of these books. So we are going to do numbers today and I want to give credit to this book. If you guys are looking for a book that kind of isn't like a commentary that goes deep, it's a nice overview of every book of the Bible. This is an excellent book. I was turned on to this book by Pastor Ventura and I found it very, very helpful in, in uh, preparing for these surveys. And this is the outline that we're gonna cover. We're gonna look at some background issues and historical context. We're gonna look at the literary nature of the book, a general structure and outline of the book, and then some theological and practical themes of the book. So with that behind us, let me pray and ask God to bless our class. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for bringing us here today to worship you together with one another as your children. We thank you that we can come to your throne, your holy, majestic throne, knowing that it is a throne of grace because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that he would be exalted in the class today and in all the Sunday school classes with the children. We pray that you'd bless each and every class. We pray for our worship service today that you would meet with us and that you would bless us for your glory and that you would even save some among us that are yet outside of Christ. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so first, let's consider background issues and historical context of the book of Numbers. The five books of Moses are called by different names. The law, the Torah, which is in Hebrew, the law, the law of Moses, and also the Pentateuch. The word Pentateuch comes from the two Greek words, penta, which means five, and tukos, which means scroll or book. These five books have a special continuity and connection with one another. Their content, themes, purpose, and style all point to the single author, Moses. The Pentateuch makes up a unity each book effectively picks up where the previous one leaves off. Taken together, the first five books of the Bible have completeness. 
the Pentateuch not only is consecutive history, but it also uncovers progressive spiritual development. In Genesis, God provides us with the foundation for the entire Bible, a foundation of both history and theology. The first 11 chapters of Genesis give a sweeping survey of the world's ancient origins and events. God's work of creation, the fall of man, the judgment of the flood, and the spread of the nations throughout the world. And then starting in chapter 12, God singles out one man through whom he brings salvation and blesses all the nations of the world. The rest of Genesis tracks the story of Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Then in Exodus, God gives us the history of Jacob's descendants, starting with their providential move from Canaan to Egypt, and then on to their suffering under the bondage of a new pharaoh, which Pastor Kennecott has been preaching about in the evenings. Then after 400 years, they cry out to God for deliverance. And God raises up and empowers Moses to stand against Pharaoh. So God brings about 10 ravaging plagues. Then God redeems his people by the Passover. A male lamb without blemish was killed and its blood was put on the doorpost. The Israelites leave Egypt, cross the Red Sea, and journey to Mount Sinai. Then God reveals his covenant law and gives them the pattern for building the tabernacle. In the third book of the law, Leviticus, God displays how his redeemed and delivered people must be set apart to God to live holy lives. God gives them instructions for the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And in the book of Leviticus, he teaches his people how to become ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremonially and morally pure. Leviticus puts an emphasis on sanctification and service and obedience. And then in the book of Numbers, which we're going to look at today, while still at Mount Sinai, God's people receive additional directions for advancing to the promised land of Canaan. When they are on the verge of entering the land, their faith crumbles And God disciplines them by making them wander throughout the wilderness. This wandering continues until the whole disbelieving generation dies out, except for two faith-filled servants, Caleb and Joshua. The new generation, those born to the first generation that were delivered from slavery, then reach Moab, the doorway to the land of Canaan. It is here that God begins to instruct the people who are about to enter and inherit the land. And then the fifth and final book of the Pentateuch, the law, Moses, it's Deuteronomy, where Moses is at the end of his life and Joshua has been appointed his successor. In his farewell message to the new generation that grew up in the wilderness, Moses reminds them of God's dealings with them in the past and with their parents. And he reviews with them the need for righteousness and integrity. And he reveals what will happen in the near and distant future if they believe and obey God or if they are faithless and disobey God. Moses then blesses the people as he views the promised land from Mount Nebo before his death. So that's a little context 
historical context of the book of Numbers. This is an interesting chart that was in that book I mentioned earlier. If you walk with me vertically down each chart, so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then we compare each. So first, the key idea in each of those books, the Pentateuch. Genesis is the beginning. Exodus, redemption. Leviticus, worship. And our book today, Numbers, wandering. Wilderness, wandering. And then Deuteronomy, renewed covenant. Then under the nation, in Genesis, chosen. Exodus, delivered. Leviticus, set apart. Numbers, directed. And then Deuteronomy, made ready. And then the people, in Genesis, prepared. In Exodus, redeemed. In Leviticus, they're taught. In Numbers, they're tested. And then in Deuteronomy, they're retaught. Then God's character. We see an emphasis or a highlighting of God's character in Genesis as powerful and sovereign. In Exodus, as merciful. In Leviticus, as holy. In Numbers, as just. And in Deuteronomy, as loving Lord. And then God's activity, creator, deliverer, sanctifier, sustainer, and rewarder. And then finally, God's commands, let there be, and these are quotes from each of the book, let there be, let my people go, be holy, go in, obey. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham three things. I will make you a great nation. I will bring you to a land that I will show you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we see in the book of Numbers and in the whole Pentateuch that God is faithful to his covenant promises. Despite disobedience and despite rebellion, God is faithful to his promises. The date and setting of the book. The book of Numbers stretches over almost 39 years from 1444 to 1405 BC. It records Israel's movement from the last 20 days at Mount Sinai, the wandering around Kadesh Barnea, and then finally the arrival in the plains of Moab in the 40th year. Their tents surrounding the tabernacle occupy several square miles. Whenever they camp as approximately two and a half million people must be accounted for. Imagine you go to 441, to lions, to the sawgrass, to Hillsborough, and you had the tabernacle in the center, and you had all the tribes of Israel, two and a half million people camped out in the wilderness, and God's presence is with them, a cloud by day, fire by night, and God, they move. They move as God brings the cloud away and they move. And two and a half million people, we see that God is a God of order and that he's bringing the people from slavery to the promised land in an orderly way with the sacrificial system. And he's a promise keeper. He's faithful. God miraculously feeds and sustains them in the desert. He preserves their clothing. He gives them manna, meat, water, leaders. 
And of course, the promise of new land from the covenant made with Abraham. Here you'll notice um, four roots. I'd like to explain each of those four roots. Upon release, the Israelites departed from the land of Goshen, crossing the Red Sea, and arrived at Sinai, where they stayed for a year. Departing from Sinai, they followed a route northward to Kadesh Barnea, which ended in the disastrous attempt to invade Canaan without God's assistance. Then 38 years they spent wandering in the wilderness. Number three, in an area generally believed to have included where Moses grew up in Midian or where his homeland was. And then the fourth route, under God's direction, the Israelites traveled to Moab where they camped for months before successfully advancing into Canaan. So this is a history book. When Moses begins the book of Numbers, only a year has passed since the exodus out of Egypt. Numbers is a book of divine discipline. In this book, Moses shows us the painful consequences of unbelief and careless decisions and choices. Numbers begins with the old generation delivered out of slavery from Egypt chapters 1 through 12. Then it moves through a tragic transition period of rebellion and unbelief in chapters 13 through 20. And then the book ends with a new generation in chapters 21 through 36, ready at the doorstep to go into the land of Canaan. The book of Numbers contains the records of two generations, two censuses, a numbering of the people by the 12 tribes, one at the beginning and one towards the end, and two sets of instructions for enjoying the land of promise. In Numbers, we learn that God's love is kind, but it also can be very severe. We see God's faithfulness and his kindness and his love and his mercy, but we also see his severity and his punishment and his discipline. We see from Numbers that God's people must learn that they can move forward only as they trust and depend upon him. By faith and obedience, by faith and repentance, by looking to him. Numbers is the book of wanderings. It takes its name from two, two numberings or two censuses of the Israelites. The first was at Mount Sinai and then the second was on the plains of Moab. Most of the book describes Israel's experiences as they wander in the wilderness. Now, those census number taking was of males 20, 20 years old and up that, were, that could fight in the war. So when we get those numbers, they equal about 605,000. But that doesn't include the older people and the younger people and the women and children. So they estimate 2.5 million people were wandering through that desert. The lesson of numbers is clear. While it may be necessary to pass through wilderness experiences, one does not have to live there. Unfortunately for Israel, what could have been an 11-day journey to Canaan became a 40-year agony. Numbers also has been called the book of journeyings, the book of murmurings and complaining, and simply the fourth book of Moses. 
Israel as a nation is in its infant stage as Numbers begins. It was only 13 months after the exodus from Egypt. In Numbers, we see faithful, divine discipline. It was necessary for the nation to go through the painful process of testing and maturation. God teaches his people the consequences of sin, rebellion, and irresponsible decision-making. The 40 years of wilderness experience transforms them from a mob of ex-slaves into a nation ready to take possession of the promised land. In Numbers, we see three distinct sections. The old generation in chapters 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 10. A tragic transitional period from chapter 10, verse 11, to chapter 25, verse 18. And then the last section, number 3, ends with the new generation, chapters 26 through 36. And they're at the doorway to enter the land of Canaan. And we learn about that in the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy. We see the old generation in chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 10, 10. Here, the generation that witnessed God's miraculous acts of deliverance and and preservation, they receive further direction from God while they're still at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's instructions are very explicit for them, reaching every aspect of their lives. He's the author of order, not confusion, And this is seen in the way he organizes the people around the tabernacle. By both the outward condition of the camp in chapters 1 through 4, as well as the inward condition addressed by numerous sacrificial offerings in chapters 5 through 10, Numbers describes the spiritual preparation of the people of God. We see the tragic transition from chapter 10, verse 11, to chapter 25, verse 18. When Israel follows God step by step until Canaan is right in their sight. And instead of believing God and taking him at his promises and taking the land, they begin to have fear. In that crucial moment at Kadesh, they draw back in unbelief. They didn't believe God's promises. Their murmurings and complainings had become constant. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it. Numbers 11, 1. But their unbelief, after sending out the 12 spies at Kadesh Barnea, is something God will not tolerate. He sent the spies in there, and they all came back except for two, fearful that there's no way we'll be able to go in there and take the land. Their rebellion at Kadesh marks the pivotal point of the book. The generation of the Exodus will not be the generation of the conquest. Unbelief brings discipline and hinders God's blessing. The old generation is doomed to literally kill time for 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. One year for every day spent by the 12 spies that were inspecting the land. They are judged by the disinheritance and death as as the journey changes from one of anticipation to one of aimlessness. Only Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who believed God, get to enter Canaan. Almost nothing is recorded about these transitional years. Open your Bibles to chapter 13. Let's take a a little break from our 
survey. Chapter 13. Numbers 13. I want, I want us to read a large portion here about the spies that were sent in. Look at verse one. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them who were the heads of the children of Israel. Then it goes through the names of the men and the, and the families and tribes they come from. Then jump down to verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into, into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell there in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether they're forest or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Seshia, Talma, the descendants of Anak were there. How Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskel and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They all brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now when they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea or by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak that came from giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in, in their sight. Let's stop there for now. Maybe we could apply this to our own lives. Perhaps there's something that's right in front of you that is, seems impossible. Maybe it's a burden of financial debt. Maybe it's a family squabble. 
a difficult family situation that you see no hope. Maybe it's the loss of a job or maybe it's a, an ailment, a chronic ailment of some kind, something that seems like these spies. I, I can't, I can't. It's too much. There's no way. Believe God. Believe God. You're a child of God and there's promises that he's made to you. Just like he made promises to his covenant people that he would give them the land and they're not believing it. He's told you that he causes all things to work together for good. He loves you. You love him. He's, you're his child. He's made a covenant with you to never leave you nor forsake you. To trust him. To trust him not only for the big things, but trust him for the little things. One day we're all going to be glorified in his presence. And like the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings, as they're heading to the land of Canaan, we too are tested with different trials and different situations. And God wants us to believe him and to trust him and to not rebel like these did. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And then this next phrase you see throughout the book of Numbers. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land for they are but bread. Their protection has departed from them and the Lord is with us Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? Believe me. This is God speaking. How long will they not believe me? You know, that's the holy war. That's the fight of faith for each one of us to believe God. Because when we believe God, God, God blesses us. He loves it when, when his people trust him and believe his promises. The greatest among us are not the strongest and the most disciplined. The greatest among us are those who have humble belief in God. Believe me, with all the signs which I performed among you, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater 
and mightier than they. So these, that first generation is not going to go in to the land of Canaan. So let's go back to our survey. We see this new generation in chapters 21 through 36 come up. When the transition to the new generation is complete, the people move to the plains of Moab directly east of the promised land in chapter 22, verse 1. Before they can enter the land, they must wait until all is ready. Here they receive new instructions. A new census is taken. Joshua is appointed to take Moses' place as as his successor. Numbers records all of these, these sets of two. Two numberings, two journeyings, and two sets of instructions. It illustrates both the kindness and the severity of God and teaches that God's people can move forward only as they trust and depend upon him. Only as they trust and depend upon him. Our worst times as Christians is when we look inward at ourselves and we see, we see that we're dust. We see that we're weak. There's nothing good in us apart from Christ. It's only as we look to Jesus It's only as we depend upon him and believe his promises that we can be the kind of Christians that we want to be and that God will help us to be. It's about the fight of faith. It's a fight of faith. So let's just look briefly at the literary nature of the book. Numbers can be seen as instructional history writing. The book describes the migration of Israel from Sinai to the plains of Moab, a journey troubled with a series of rebellions against the Lord and his theocratic administrators, which resulted in the death of the adults of the Exodus generation. It's important to recognize that much of Numbers includes a variety of other types of literary genre. And I got this from a very scholarly gentleman he, he saw in here not only history, but he saw poetry, chapter 21, prophecy, chapter 24, victory songs in chapter 21, prayer in chapter 12, blessings in chapter 6, a diplomatic letter in chapter 21, civil law in chapter 27, authoritative decision by Almighty God in chapter 15, a census list in 26, a temple archive in, in chapter 7, and then an itinerary literature in chapter 33. Some scholars have had trouble outlining this book because it's such a hodgepodge of information and deals with so many different events over this 40-year period. It's very difficult to um, outline the book. And that brings us to our next heading. The outlines, all the outlines I found were four or five pages long, detailing every little event, and I just took a lot of that out and just stayed with some of the major things here. You know, one of, my perp- one of the purposes we do these surveys is to encourage you that as you read through the Bible, it gives you kind of a foundation to start from. And so hopefully that, that this class will help you to be more familiar with the book. Part one, the preparation of the old generation to inherit the promised land. The organization of Israel, the sanctification of Israel. Then part two, the failure of the old generation to inherit the promised land. 
the failure of Israel en route to Kadesh, the climactic failure of Israel at Kadesh, the failure of Israel in the wilderness, and then the failure of Israel en route to Moab. And then part three, the preparation of the new generation to inherit the promised land. The reorganization of Israel, the regulations of offerings and vows, and then the conquest and division of Israel. This brings us to our last heading. Theological and practical themes of the book. The theme of Numbers is this, the consequence of disbelief and disobedience to our holy God. God is righteous, he's holy, he is truthful. He, he has to be just. He, he's, he has to be consistent with his character. He's holy and just and he loves the truth. The Lord disciplined his people but remained faithful to his covenant promises, his gracious covenant promises in spite of their fickleness. Numbers displays the patience, holiness, justice, mercy, sovereignty of God toward his people. It teaches that there are no shortcuts to his blessings. He uses trials and tests for specific purposes. One of the things as I was listening to this book over and over going through it that kept coming out to me was equally these two thoughts. God's sovereign power in accomplishing his covenant, his rule over everything, and then also man's responsibility and the consequences of not keeping their responsibility. And we should never emphasize one over the other because they're both true. We see it in numbers. We see these wicked people making wicked decisions and being punished. And even their families, getting, they're getting swallowed up in the ground for a mistake that the head of the family did that they're accountable and responsible for their behavior. But at the same time, God is sovereign, working out his redemptive program, his redemptive plan. I bow before the word of God as I say that to you. Can I, can I peel back the layers of the onion and, and explain all? No, but it's clear, it's very clear in this book that man, man is responsible for their behavior. But God is sovereign and God has promises and God strengthens and blesses his people. We see Caleb and we see Joshua full of faith and God using them, helping them as they go forward in that faith. Numbers was written to trace the history of Israel's wanderings from Sinai to Moab. But the fact that there is almost no record of 38 years of wandering shows that Numbers is a very thematic history. Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, selects those events that are important to the development of God's redemptive purpose. The sins of the first generation were written as a reminder and a warning to the second generation. We as God's people must trust God. We must believe him if we desire to possess the blessings of his promises. And there ends 
my prepared um, thoughts on this survey. But what I wanted to do with, re- with the remaining time is I wanted us to think about um, a few New Testament verses that actually refer back to numbers. And the first is John 3.14. John 3.14 refers back to something in Numbers 21.9. And in 21.9 we read, well I'll, read, I'll start with verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now here we see God's sovereign justice in punishing his people. But we also see his mercy in providing a salvation there a serpent on a pole. When he looks at it, he shall live. So Moses made the bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And we see in the Gospel of John, verse 14, it says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was in the midst of his people in the book of Numbers, in the tabernacle. You might remember the story of Balak and Balaam. Jesus appears there as the angel of the Lord when, the, when he, uh, he enables the donkey to speak to that prophet. And there he's protecting the people of God from the enemies that want to war against him. Jesus came down and defended his people there in, the, in a, a pre-incarnate appearance as angel of the Lord. You know, Spurgeon was saved by a similar statement as, as this. Look to Jesus. Look and live. Believe. Look and live. Salvation is completely of the Lord. Jesus accomplished it. The Father planned it. The Holy Spirit applies it. It's all of the Lord. And when we come into the kingdom by grace through faith, by looking to Christ, it's the same way we walk in the kingdom, by looking to Christ, looking outside of ourselves, looking to his promises, believing him, communing with him, breathing out prayers to him, and breathing in his word to us. Next, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 Verses 1 through 13. In these 13 verses, Numbers 2011, Numbers 1429, Numbers 114, Numbers 25, 1 through 9, Numbers 21, 6 through 9, and Numbers 1437 are all alluded to in these 13 verses. And I'm just going to read it, make a few comments. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate. 
all ate the same spiritual food. Remember the, remember the manna and remember the quail that came down from heaven. All these miracles and they still rebelled against God. God blessed them over and over and over and they still rebelled. And all drank the same spiritual drink, that water that came from the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. We can weep and we can mourn and we can cry, but we should never complain. We should never complain. We are the children of God and all the promises are ours. They're all ours. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Amen. And the last verse is Jude, verses three through 11. Jude is dealing with false teachers in the church and he refers back to something in, in uh, Numbers. So let me read Jude, uh, verses three through 11. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak of evil dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We're not going to deal with that passage with two minutes left. I actually want to get to the last phrase. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, 
have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So I wanted to mention this, this phrase, rebellion of Korah. Korah was a cousin of, of Aaron, the, the high priest. And he was a Levite and he had duties and responsibilities, but he and other, other men with him longed to be a priest. They wanted they wanted the preeminence. They, they said, why should Moses and Aaron have all the responsibilities? We're capable men too. And they, they stood up and they wanted to take away some power from Aaron and from Moses. And Moses was very meek. He said, let's ask the Lord. And you can read it in number 16. But this man, this Korah, is being used as an example as Jude is writing to God's people about false teachers. And there's a warning in, 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 in this for us. You know, we, we have a great confession of faith, the 1689. And we are privileged with much knowledge and much wisdom. And we sit under great teaching. And there's a danger. The Bible says there's a danger. Knowledge does what? It puffs up. And we have innate remaining sin. We have pride. And we want to be somebody. We want the preeminence sometimes. And we have to look to Jesus again in this, in this situation. What did Jesus do? He humiliated himself. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. And he was with those most in need, the poor and the weak and the needy he loved and he served. And that's what we're to be like our Savior, to be humble servants for God's glory, full of faith in the promises, full of faith in Christ. Well, we're out of time, so let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace and your great love to us in this plan of redemption, in sending your Son to become incarnate, to be born in a stable as a little baby and to grow up and die on a cross for our sins. We thank you for that. We pray that you'd help us to relish in it and marvel in it and to trust in it. Help us to be full of faith. Help us to be servants. Help us to be humble. Father, we know, we know our weakness. We know that you know our weakness and we so much need your help. Bless us now as we worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org dot o-r-g